I'm pumped about looking at the Word today because I get to talk about something that I feel like Yeshua has really been speaking to me on a personal level about. So uh, I want to look first at the concept of God's passion and also the passion that we can have for Him and uh, and for the things that He's passionate about. Uh, Let's look at the Parsha first in uh, Numbers chapter 25. So uh, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a continuation from last week. Um, last week, uh, Midian, the, the 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 nation of Midian was feeling an existential threat from Israel, and uh, at the council of of Balaam, who is a very spiritual man and something of a prophet, albeit a prophet that seemed to have a weakness for for uh, for uh, financial gain and. Um, for uh, popularity, they, uh, they, they were advised, the nation of Midian, to send their most attractive women into the camp of Israel and seduce the men. Because if they did that, Midian wouldn't have to fight Israel. God would just judge Israel. And um, it's a terrifying thing when you have the Almighty not on your side. And uh, so that was the strategy. So anyway, um, that's what happened. All these uh, lovely maidens from Midian started traipsing into the camp. And the Israelite guys were going gaga over them apparently. And um, they were beginning to uh, fall into immorality. And um, the son of the high priest, uh, the high priest was of, uh, was, uh, of course uh, Nadab, no sorry, Eleazar. The, the son of Eleazar... Um, whose name was Phineas in English and in Hebrew Pinchas. Everybody say Pinchas. Um, he was, he was, he, I don't know what his emotional state was, but it, from his actions it appears that he was enraged and he felt a very high degree of indignancy. And perhaps he was also acting out of concern for the nation because um, there was a massive plague hitting the nation of Israel as, as people were, uh, were falling into sin. And there were people dropping dead all over the place. So he grabbed a spear and there were two people that were just going to go into a tent. And I don't know if they were actually in a marital relationship or if they were committing fornication. But uh, he ran them both through with the spear. So two people, one thrust, and they both died. And um, that was where we left off last week. That would, that would be the part of the movie that would be rated R for violence. Um, it's, it's quite a bloody scene, actually. So let, let's, let's see what, um, what the Holy One has to say about this and uh, see what the outcome, uh, the outcome is going to be. Um, you'll, you'll notice a couple things about, uh, about Pinchas, too. Uh, number one, he was young. Uh, he was a relatively young man. We know that because he was the son of Eliezer, who uh, was the son of Aaron. So he was Aaron's grandson. Uh, number two, none of the national leadership, like Moses or Phineas's dad, who was the high priest, or uh, any of the tribal leaders, no one authorized him to do what he did. From all appearances, it was, a, it was, a, it was an act of his own initiative. It could have been that his, the, uh, um, perhaps he was overwhelmed to some degree in the moment, but whatever the case may have been, um, no one authorized him to do what he did. So... Um, this is how the Parsha starts. Uh, Yahweh says in verse 11, he, he, he speaks very favorably of, of Phineas. He basically, he, he, uh, he comes on Phineas's side and uh, he supports his actions, which is probably, it might have been a lifesaver for Phineas. He might have been, I don't know, he was probably on the, on the verge of falling into uh, really losing a lot of popularity ratings with the, the immoral section of the, the people of Israel. So basically what God says is, I like that. 
Maybe not. Maybe uh, you know, violence, of course, is never preferable. So I don't know that the Holy One was saying that he approved of violence necessarily. But he pointed at Phineas's heart, and he says um, he says something about Phineas's passion. Um, he says in verse eleven, he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word there for jealousy is? Kina. Everybody say kina. Yeah, um, we ha- we have a similar expression of this. Actually, Yahweh says that he is El Kana. That's one of his titles. El, of course, is the is a, is a powerful person, God. Um, kana is um, it could be translated jealous, zealous, or passionate. It means all of those things. There are some translations who will t- translate El Kana as the passionate God. So where you read this word jealousy, also read that as zeal and passion. Uh, similarly, that, will, that word will turn up in, uh, let's say, in Paul's epistles, where he says that salvation coming to the nations is somehow designed to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. If you read that word as synonymous with zeal or passion, it'll give you a fuller understanding of it. So that's the idea there. So uh, what, what we see here is, um, number one, Yahweh is passionate. He's jealous over his people as his bride. Um, He is zealous for us. He's passionate for us. And he likes it when we reciprocate that same passion. When we, in our actions and in our emotional constitution, reflect the passion of the God of Israel. He likes that. He gives that a a very strong thumbs up. Yeah. I, I think it probably brings him pleasure. Seriously. When we reflect His passion in our lives, and when we act from that place, I believe that brings Him pleasure. And that's something that's been blowing me away for the last couple months. I remember when we were reading through uh, Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and he said it is, He's the one who's at work in us to will and to, to work. In other words, to desire and to act for Elohim's pleasure. That blew me away. It's still blowing me away that we can actually, our desires can bring our Creator pleasure. That our actions in this world can... Can, like, really, they can, they can please him. Wow. So anyway, th- this is an example of that. Uh, Pinchas, in, in his zealous action. Um, so, you, like I pointed out here, Phineas was, was, uh, was a relatively young man. Uh, sometimes in the world at large, or in, the religious, in religious communities, young people kind of get shoved in the corner, or told they can't do anything because they're too young, uh, those kinds of things. I, I think it's definitely important for younger people to grow in humility, to uh, grow in looking to elders for wisdom and for advice and for teaching. But um, I, I, think, I think based on passages like this, that it's, uh, the best approach is to empower our younger people. Rather than focusing on telling them what they can't do, you know, you're too young to preach the gospel, you're too young to make disciples for Yeshua, you're too young to influence people for the Torah, instead of taking that approach, it's probably better, based on passages like this, to encourage our young people to be passionate for God and to act out of that passion, assuming it's in a humble attitude, assuming it's in right relationship with the broader community, assuming that those younger people also have a healthy relationship with their elders. 
Um, we, we, we read about that actually in, in Paul's letter to Titus too and in several of the apostolic uh, epistles they say, you know, for you younger men um, be subject to your elders so have a healthy relationship with your elders where you look up to them, where, you, where you're accountable where you, where you receive advice so that's something that we can learn from this uh, passage encourage our young people to be like Phineas to be passionate for God and to go for it um, you'll, you'll, you'll observe in um, verse 12 and 13, Yahweh says um, that he's giving Phineas a covenant of a perpetual priesthood. The word there is kahunat olam. Uh, you know what a kahunah is, a priesthood. And then olam is what? Forever. Eternal. So, so like the Holy One is saying, in response to this act of passion from Phineas, the Holy One is saying, I am giving him an eternal priesthood. I'm giving him a a perpetual priesthood. Not only to him, but it says here, to his descendants after him. So we learn another thing from this. We learn that when we allow ourselves to be passionate for the God of Israel, and when we act out of that passion, it does not just influence us on an individual level. It influences our families. It influences the generations after us. So Phineas' passion for God didn't just influence him. It influenced his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons for generations to come. I, I don't know about you, but that really inspires me to let my heart burn for him and to act from that and to uh, let that be the legacy that I leave for generations to come. I would love it if my great-great-grandsons knew about me and said, you know what, my great-great-grandpa was a passionate man for the God of Israel. And he acted out of that passion for the Holy One. You know, that's the kind of thing I I dream about and I aspire to. Something that we we see in this passage. Um, We also see in this passage that in response to Phineas and his act, he was given a priesthood. Now, what's a priesthood? This is something, of course, that's very relevant. We talked about that with the the Melchizedekian priesthood, right? Uh, a, A priest's job description basically is as a representative. A priest represents... uh, In in that context, the priest represented Yahweh to Israel and also represented Israel to Yahweh. It was like a two-way intermediatorial role. And um, I I wonder what that tells us when we allow Yeshua to ignite His fire in our lives and baptize us in His Holy Spirit as is promised in the New Covenant. What it tells me is when that begins to happen, we are going to be acting priestly roles. In other words, we are going to find ourselves representing Yahweh to the people around us as priests. And we're also going to find ourselves as priests praying for our families, for our communities, our city. That's what priests do. Priests represent God to people. And they represent people to God in prayer. So uh, we, we see that, you know, if this is an area where we sense Yeshua calling us to, and I believe that He is, then it's going to start with letting Him ignite that passion in our lives. And then the natural outcome will be that, 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 that priestly representation. Um, You'll, you'll also notice three times here it phrases it in different ways. In, in 25 verse 8, it says um, the plague was checked in response to Phineas's passionate action. In verse 11, it says that I didn't destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. 
He, he turned away my wrath. He diverted my wrath. And then finally in verse 13, um, he says that Phineas's action actually made atonement for the sons of Israel. So here was a man who was acting in a priestly capacity, who was, who was acting on, not, not necessarily on his own passion, but he was reflecting Yahweh's passion for his people. And, and the result was actually like the nation of Israel was rescued from destruction. The wrath of God was diverted. I, I wonder, could that happen for us too? Could it be that there are times when, when Yeshua's people will, will intercede passionately or, or who will, will re- reflect His heart in that way and we will see the wrath of God diverted from our nation? We will see plagues checked that would otherwise hit our city and maybe be decimating. Could it be that that's, that's, that's our job as the people of Yeshua? I, I think it is. I, I think we could make a solid case for that based on this passage. So we see that Phineas wasn't just a, a lone dude who did something kind of wild and, and just barely got out of it alive. We see that he was actually, he's, he's one of the heroes of our faith. He's an example to each one of us. And, uh, and um, I, I, I personally look up to the, uh, the, the person of Phineas. It's, it's interesting, too, in verse 12. Like, Phineas, he, he, um, he does something quite violent, really. And um, it's, it's almost paradoxical, but in response, he's given a covenant of what? Peace. Shalom. Isn't that interesting? He acts violently, and he's given a covenant of shalom. It just seems to be this, this interesting paradox. And I, I, w- what I get out of this is um, th- there, there is a time and a place for violent action. And I'll, I'll qualify that. I'm not saying pack a pistol and shoot sinners, right? Um, I'm not saying... Actually, I, I've been getting some feedback lately about we're going to have to keep our comments and questions for after we're going to look at the Torah. Then we're going to keep our comments and questions because a lot of people in our live stream say they can't hear anything and it's kind of frustrating for them. So if that's cool, write down your comments and questions and then we'll talk about it after that, alright? So sorry, I know I like the group discussion thing, but it's kind of like it doesn't work. So we'll, we'll, we'll touch base about that more. But just for now, let's, let's, let's leave it at that. But anyway, um, we, we see that there's a, there's a place, there's a time and a place for violent action not physically violent action. All right? uh, obviously, I am not saying that. No one's, going to be, no one's going to be stabbing people who are committing fornication or anything like that. Um, please don't do that. Um, but, but you can see, like, there's a place for... Th- there are other levels of violent action. Th- there can be times when your prayer is violent action. I don't have any of you ever, like, really cut loose in prayer and prayed almost violently for people. You know, there are times when people will be under spiritual attack and you will be stepping in for them and you will be resisting the devil on their behalf. That's actually, a, that's actually that is spiritually violent action. Not against flesh and blood, because our battle isn't against humans, but against the powers of darkness, yes. So um, for those of you who have a warrior's heart that's awakening or that is already awake, move in that warrior's heart. Let, let that be expressed in prayer because there are people who need you to, to fight for them and to step in on their behalves. Um, there, there's a time for bold action, for decisive action, for aggressive action. To me, all these, these concepts are synonymous with the, the aggressive action that Phineas took. Um, here, here are some other areas that I thought of where I believe that we as Yeshua's disciples can, can act on a violent level, to use that term. Um, 
there is, a, there is a place actually for relational violence. And uh, I want to be careful with this because we're called to love. That's our job. We are not called to be judgmental, etc. And people could, people could look at this passage and they could so twist it out of context and they could justify all sorts of horrendous behavior or just, you know, sometimes people can be jerks or religious jerks and they can use passages like this to excuse themselves. I'm not talking about that. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, in Paul's epistle to Titus, he says, um, if, there's a, if there's people who are pushing unhealthy doctrine... And um, then you warn those people twice, he says. And he says, if they don't listen, then they're self-condemned and they're perverted and you are to remove them from the congregation. All right? That would be an example of violent action. To, to suspend relationship with someone on a congregational level because of, uh, because of stubbornness or rebellion or whatever. That would be an example, actually, of, of, of violent action, but in a, in a Bible-based and righteous context. Um, other, other areas where that could be expressed are in the political arena. Um, I, I'm a big believer in Yeshua's people being involved politically, being aggressively involved politically. Uh, that can even involve violent action. Um, when the legislation went through in the 60s for uh, uh, making abortion legal in Canada and the States, it was, it was pushed through with violent support from the pro-choice movement. I'm not saying physically violent, but it was a violent motion. And um, that would be an example of something from the other side. I, I believe there are times when violent action from the enemy is to be met with violent action from Yeshua's side also. You know, in humility, in the power of the, of the Ruach HaKodesh, and with prayer. But, but still, I, I don't believe we're called to be passive in this world. Other areas would be the educational sector, uh, maybe even in school. Alien? Yeah, oh Yeah. Okay, um, in the corporate world, there, there's, a, there's a time when people in the corporate world can be a voice for honest business dealings, for, uh, for integrity. Um, you know what, that can almost take a violent level sometimes. Uh, in the media would be another example. I mean, really, like you uh, check out um, any one of a number of media channels, whether it be on the internet or on TV, and you see that the enemy is aggressively and even violently preaching and promoting his ideals to a generation. And uh, could it be that there's a, there's a time and a place for Yeshua's people to engage and to be equally aggressive in promoting uh, righteousness and, uh, and the truth? I, I think so. Um, so, on, on, a, on a personal level, this is something that I've really been questioning lately because I have a lot of stuff on the table right now. Um, I have like... You know, let's say with Holy Language Institute, or here with Chrono Messiah, or, or with some other areas of action, I'm at the point where I'm like, I can't do all of this. And I've been, I, I'm prayerfully kind of going through a restructuring in my own life right now, where I'm like, Yeshua, what are, what are you most passionate about? And how can I, what are you, what are you making me most passionate about? Because I want to do that. You know, and I, and, I, and I think this can be true for each one of us. We, we never want to do stuff just because we think we should. Or because there's a program that has to be maintained. You know, heaven forbid that we as a community would ever be program-oriented or program-run. I, I pray that we as a community can be passion-oriented and passion-driven. 
So, um, you know, that, that's something I'm thinking through. And in saying that, I'm not thinking of cutting out from Crown of Messiah because this is what I'm passionate about. But even with that, there are different areas that you can be more passionate about. Like, for instance, um, I feel really passionate about moving to Prince Albert and about really engaging with, the city, with city life here, um, making a lot of connections and starting to build a lot of relationships that I, I pray will influence people to come to Yeshua and to begin to practice His Torah. That's, that's, as I've been thinking through some of my passions, that's uppermost on my list, right? That's, like what I, that's what I get revved about. When I start thinking about doing stuff, that's what I get revved about, eh? Um, so, you know, the, the question goes for all of us. What, 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 really, what, what really gets you revved? Like, what do you really want to do with Yeshua, maybe in the context of our community also? That's the thing that you should take and run. And you know, um, it's, it's one of those things where the way we function as a community, I'm not necessarily going to plan everything or execute everything or come up with all the ideas. If you have an idea or something that you're feeling revved about, you know, it might be an area where you can, you can be one of those people that just says... Um, you know, I'm really, I have this idea, or this is something I'm passionate about. How can we do this? And uh, we as a community can, can, maybe, can maybe go for that or whatever. So I, uh, that's, that's something I'd like to uh, continue to have as our, as our MO, as our modus operandi. So that's, that's something that's kind of, I've been thinking through. Actually, I'll give you guys a little news update. Um, we've been in touch with the PA Housing Authority, and they have a couple different townhouses available coming up on August 1st. So after, after our service in Oneg, we think we're going to go do a little drive-by, um, check it out or whatever. So you can be in prayer for us. We might be showing up in PA on August 1st for, for keeps. I hope so. And um, that's something that I personally am really passionate about right now. So maybe, oh. Yeah. Thank you, Abba. Yeah. Actually, I, I feel like praying about that right now. Um, just about that whole, that whole concept. Um, Abba Father, um, uh, thank you for coming into our lives when we had no clue about you. And for all intents and purposes, you were a million miles away. And you're the one who introduced yourself to us. And Yeshua, you, you have been so gallant in how you've pursued us. And you, you truly have won our hearts. And you are, you, are, you are so deserving of our allegiance. And, um, and we see how, I mean, even Yeshua, how, how you suffered on our behalf, how you took the death penalty, how you, you, you violently shed your blood to, to make us yours. People call that your passion. And I can so see how you, you were acting out of your passion, Yeshua, when you did that. And we, we thank you for that. It makes me want to cry just knowing that you love us passionately and that you are jealous over us. And um, I, I, I think, Yeshua, of how you said that you came to cast a fire on the earth. And um, you really wanted, you, 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 you were already wishing that it was kindled, but you had to undergo that baptism of, of, of suffering first and go through that, that, that passionate suffering on our behalf. And uh, thank you for that, Yeshua. Thank you that you have cast that fire from heaven on the earth. Thank you that you have kindled your fire in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for that promise in this new covenant relationship that we have with you in which you've guaranteed us that Yeshua will, will immerse us in your Ruach HaKodesh, in your Holy Spirit, and, and in your fire, Father. And I, I, think of the, I, I think of Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim, how, uh, how it says that your love is a fire. 
And it, it's fierce. And not even death can overcome it. And nothing can quench it. And I thank you for that. And I, I, I pray, Yeshua, that you would come into every area of our lives where our hearts have grown cold or lukewarm. Sometimes I, I just feel totally cold, Master Yeshua. Sometimes I, I feel anything but passionate for your cause or to preach the gospel or to do the things that you've said. Um, sometimes reading the Bible is so boring and I, I certainly don't feel your fire burn, burning. And I, I think we all have times like that, Yeshua. And I, I, I pray that you would give us repentance in the areas where we can repent and um, give us a gusto to go after you with all our hearts, I pray. I pray, Father, that you would show us areas in our lives where we can experiencing your, your fire uh, maybe kindled for the first time or maybe rekindled in areas where it's died down. But I pray for that, Yeshua. Father, I, I think of how it says that zeal for your house actually consumed our rabbi. He even did, he even did things like making premeditated acts of violence, like making a whip and driving people out of your temple. Wow, Father. I pray that we could follow in that tradition of acting passionately for, for the place where your glory dwells, for your name, Father, for your house. I pray that your fire would fall on us today. I pray that you would, that you would let us reflect your passion, Abba. I ask you for that. I thank you for it, Abba. Praise your name. Bless you. I, I, I pray, Father, too, in these next couple months that you would show each one of us what it is that you have for us to be passionate about. Maybe you have individual missions for us. Maybe you have some direction that you would like us to go as a community. Maybe you have some new initiatives for some of us to spearhead. I pray that you would show us those things, Yeshua, that you would lead on and that you would renew our zeal for you and to do the mission. And uh, thank you for it, Yeshua. Thank you, Abba, in, uh, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Yeah. Um, let's, let's keep looking through the parasha here. In, um, I'll just give you a little overview, hit on a couple, couple key things. In uh, Numbers chapter 26, uh, Numbers chapter 26, I, I hope you guys all love me for not including that chapter in our readings. I was tempted to just because it's full of very painful Hebrew names. And uh, I, I decided to be nice. So I, I hope you really appreciate that. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one little key insight. It's just a very short verse in the middle of this long list of, of um, Hebrew names that are hard to wrap our mouths around. And, uh, you know, some census stuff about how many people they were, there were in various tribes. In uh, Numbers chapter 26, verse 11, it says this. The sons of Korah, however, didn't die. So you remember, we, we read a couple weeks ago, Korah was an idiot. Like, Korah, uh, all the evidence would have suggested that Moses was a real prophet, and he was not a guy to be messed with. And Korah just loses it, and he leads a rebellion, and down he goes, like elevator shaft, straight to hell, basically. Uh, with um, some of his family, too. But this verse is huge. Korah's sons didn't die. That tells us that when their dad was just acting like an idiot, his son said, we're not going to go in that direction, and they stepped out of that picture. That's huge. Um, that is, you know what? That's like, for a lot of us, that's the gospel right there. That when, that when a man did some really stupid things and went in the wrong direction, his sons didn't have to go in that direction. 
And when their dad died, they lived. That's good news. And you know what? That's really hard without Yeshua. Because the way we're programmed as human beings, we see our parents doing stupid things, and we say, I'm never going to do that, and we make our little inner vows, and then a decade or two later, we do those very things. Uncontrollably, often addictively, and we can't stop. It seems to be the, the, the vicious cycle of, of, of human nature. And um, that, that, the, the gospel is that Yeshua comes in to give us a new family, to give us a new father, to give us a new start. And to change us from the inside out so that we have a new nature. And that's powerful. And that, that's a gospel that we have to offer people in the city. And you know what? Many of us have godly backgrounds. We had godly parents, uh, people of prayer. And you know what? I'm thankful for them. That's the other half of the picture. That's also the gospel. That you know, we can leave a legacy to our children. And that we can, we can continue the legacy that, that our parents, many of us, uh, have, have, have left us. So let's, uh, let's have a look at Korah's sons, uh, kind of if we are to uh, toggle forward in history. What happens to these guys? They survived um, their dad basically going you know, straight into the ground. And um, it's pretty cool. In 1 Chronicles chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 9 and uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 26, uh, this is several centuries later in David's era, we learn that the sons of Korah were still around. Uh, they continued to function as Levites. It's kind of cool, actually. They didn't get booted out of the Levitical tribe. They didn't get like permanently dismissed from their Levitical roles. Uh, they, the, the gifts and the callings of God are, are without um, repentance, as it's said. So they're, they're irrevocable. And we see that with these, with these men. Even though Korah did something horrific, um, these men were, continued to be accepted. And uh, their, their jobs continued to be valid. And, and we read in, in 1 Chronicles 9 and 26 that these guys actually went on to become gatekeepers in the temple. Uh, these guys also went on to become integrally involved in the work of the temple. They actually became this special group of Levitical singers. So their job in the temple was just to sing to Yahweh at the top of their lungs all day. And you know, the worshippers would come to the temple. I assume they would join in and they would join these guys. But this was their job. I mean, really, they came a long way, hey? And, and you know, you can just imagine one of these sons of Korah standing in the temple, maybe, uh, maybe keeping guard at the gate, or being one of the men on the, on the duhan, it's called, on the big, on the big uh, platform, and, uh, and, and singing their hearts out to the Holy One, and just thinking, wow, you know, way back when, a couple of centuries ago, like, my dad died because he fomented a national rebellion against God himself. But you know, one of his sons, one of my great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, he didn't, he didn't follow in that tradition. And here I am today. Um, actually, the, uh, the sons of Korah also were, uh, went on to write part of the Bible. They were songwriters who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, they wrote Psalms 46 to 49. Psalms 46 to 49 are written by the sons of Korah, and then also Psalms 84 to 88, minus Psalm 86. So Psalm 86 was written by David, but the other ones in this little set from Psalm 84 to 88 are written by the descendants of Korah. And uh, I'll share with you a famous verse from Psalm 84. Um, psalm 84 is, a, is, a, is, a, is definitely a favorite psalm. It says, uh, A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my Elohim than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
And I just kind of wonder if that wasn't a, a resonation of their family history. I mean, in that generation when they wrote that song, their job was a gatekeeper. So they literally were standing at the threshold of the house of their Elohim and uh, watching the throngs come and go and uh, keeping everyone safe. And um, <laughs> dwelling in the tents of wickedness. Maybe when they wrote that, they remembered their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Korah. And uh, I think his tent definitely qualified as a, as a tent of wickedness. So, that's, that, I, I love that. Just that little verse, when we unpack it, it, uh, it has a lot of history. And it really communicates the gospel. Um, in Numbers chapter 27, we encounter five girls. Um, they're, they're, they have Hebrew names, and their names mean something in Hebrew. Uh, Liam, you had a really fun time reading those Hebrew names, didn't you? Oh, yeah. And um, I'm, I'm going to give you the English equivalents of their names, though, okay? If, if you met these girls, uh, and they had English names, their names would be Dancer, Dovey, Mover, Princess, and Delightful. Right? So if you can imagine five, five women and their names were Dancer, Dovey, Mover, Princess, and Delightful, that's the name of these girls. That's actually really nice sounding names, eh? I mean, in, in Hebrew, it's like, wow, they're just names. They, we don't know what they mean. But in Hebrew, you know, when we hear them in English, but that's what they mean in Hebrew. So anyway, um, these gals, um, these gals were fascinating. Uh, they, they took initiative also. They said, you know what? Our dad died for his own sin in the wilderness. We don't have any brothers, uh, but we don't, want, we don't want the inheritance to go to another family. They, they valued their inheritance. They, they, uh, they had honor for their family name. And uh, so Moses, he takes the case to the Holy One, and um, Yahweh responds very, very positively to these girls and their request. Um, actually, uh, this, is, this, was, this was basically some new legislation that was introduced because of these girls' requests. He said, okay, if a man dies and he doesn't have any sons to be his heirs, then there's a, there's a, logical, there's a logical progression here. Uh, firstly, if he doesn't have any sons, then the inheritance defaults to the daughters. If he doesn't have any daughters, then the inheritance defaults to, uh, to his uh, brothers. And if he doesn't have any brothers, then the inheritance defaults to his uncles. Uh, the reason for that was land in Israel was considered an ancestral possession. You know how it would default every 50 years to the original family that owned it. So uh, land was designed to stay in the family. It's actually very smart. It was a way to keep the country from being controlled by a small number of extraordinarily powerful and elite people. Uh, it kept it more family-based. Um, this, actually, this legislation turns up in the book of Ruth. You remember Boaz couldn't buy Elimelech's field and marry Ruth because there was someone closer than him in the order. So it could have been that Elimelech... Elimelech didn't have any sons. Uh, evidently, he didn't have any daughters. And so after he died, the inheritance would have gone in that order to his brothers. And if he didn't have any brothers, then to his uncle. Now, we don't know for sure, but it could have been that, that, that man who was closer than Boaz, that could have been Elimelech's brother. And, uh, you know, the other, and then boys could have been an uncle or something like that. That's the idea there. So uh, we, we, see this, we see this law reflected in the whole book of, book of Ruth. Um, in 27.15, Moses is told that he's going to die. He's not going to get to cross the Jordan into the land of Israel. And uh, it's remarkable. His first response isn't to curl up in a fetal position and bawl. 
His first response isn't to like plead with Yahweh. You know, I mean, I've come this far and I've worked so hard for you. Please let me go across. Um, his, first, his first concern is for the nation. Well, like, wow, that's the heart of a true caring leader, eh? His, his first concern wasn't for himself. It was, it was for the people that, that were um, in his care. And so he prays to Yahweh that Yahweh would, um, would raise up a new leader to, to lead the nation, to, to, uh, to go out before them in battle and to, uh, to bring them back. And uh, he actually he uses the phrase so that Israel won't be like, quote, sheep without a shepherd. Can you think of another place where that, that phrase turns up? Yeah. That's right. In, in, in Matthew chapter 9, that phrase is echoed. And I don't, think it was a, I don't think it was an accident. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, Seeing the people, Yeshua felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You could kind of say like Israel would have been without a Joshua, without a Yehoshua. The, the Jewish people in Yeshua's generation were without, like sheep without a shepherd. And it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the master of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So that was Yeshua's response. When he saw that there was a lack of qualified leadership amongst the Jewish people in the Second Temple era, he, he, he told his guys, Pray that Yahweh will raise up workers. And I wonder if that couldn't be our response today. Uh, you know, sometimes, for instance, you look at the Messianic movement, and there, it seems a little chaotic. People are all over the place. Sometimes it's like there are all kinds of people going in different directions. Sometimes you question how much qualified leadership there is, etc., etc. I, I suggest at times like that, when you have a nation or a movement that resembles a bunch of sheep with no shepherd, it's a time to respond like Yeshua taught his disciples. Pray. Pray that the master of the harvest will send workers. And, and that's something I, I do regularly. You know, in, in, in Genevieve's in my morning prayer times, I, I, it's really been on my Harley. I've, I've been praying to Yahweh for the, the, the broader body of Messiah and also for the Messianic Jewish community that he specifically would raise up apostles and prophets in the Messianic movement and in the body of Messiah. Because, um, what did Paul say? He said, like, local congregations, in, in the book of Ephesians, he said, local congregations are founded on, the, on apostles and prophets. And that, that's a foundational concept. And often when we don't have those, or when we're not familiar with how that works, or we're even close to it, we have a very weak foundation as communities, and we're bound to have meltdowns, split, crumble, uh, etc. So I, I, I don't know, if you guys want to join me in that, you know, uh, in your times of prayer, pray that Yeshua would call and train and send real apostles and real prophets, you know, in our nation, in the body of Messiah, in the Messianic Jewish community, because we really need that. We need men who will function in apostolic authority and on that level of power. We need prophets who will really move in the fire of God, you know, to a level that will make people uncomfortable and that will shock people and that will make people want to assassinate them. Because that's a trend, eh? Read about the preachers in the apostolic scriptures. A lot of them got murdered or assassinated because they were really hitting a nerve, because they were moving in the authority of God and they were speaking with a prophetic voice. And when, when, when men are sent like that, it makes people really mad. 
But it also brings kingdom order, and it brings people to repentance, and it and exalts Yeshua. And uh, that's just something that's really been on my heart lately. So, let, you know, let's continue praying that Yeshua will raise up men and women like that in, in, uh, in, 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 in the midst of his people. Yeah. So that's Yeshua's response. When you see his people like Sipadot or Shepherd, pray. Just like Moses. That's exactly what Moses did, isn't it? Moses was like, your nation, please raise up qualified leaders. Um, this is kind of cool. There are many instances in the Tanakh where it says that the Spirit fell upon this guy or the Spirit was on this man. But I, I think this is unique to Joshua. It's, it doesn't say the Spirit was on Joshua or that the Spirit would come upon him at certain times. It says that Joshua was a man in whom the Spirit was. So like, the Spirit was in Joshua. In a, I don't know if it was in a special way, but, uh, you know, Joshua, of course, in Hebrew is Yehoshua. The short form for Yehoshua is Yeshua. So Joshua is very prototypical of the Messiah. And I just wonder if that isn't a picture of the Messiah. Yeshua is the man in whom God's Spirit is comfortable, dwells eternally. What, what did Paul say? Um, in Yeshua, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So just like Joshua, uh, Yeshua, the Spirit is in him. And uh, he is the one authorized to lay his hands on us and impart that same anointing that, that is upon him. I, I think this could also be a great thing to look for. Uh, and, and to uh, Let's say we have younger people who feel called by God to preach or to train eventually to be leaders in, in the Messianic community, etc. Joshua's primary qualification wasn't that he had a degree. It wasn't that he had the right connections. It wasn't, I could list a whole bunch of things. Joshua's primary qualification, according to this passage, is that God's Spirit was in that guy. It was, it was the anointing of God. It was the Holy Spirit that qualified him for leadership in Israel. And uh, I wonder if that isn't also true today. So, you know, I, it, when, when we're looking for people... When we're trying to identify, okay, you know, who is Yeshua calling to, to be an influential person in the community or to take in a, in a certain direction? The first question we should always ask is, where's the Holy Spirit? Is the anointing upon this person for this task? And if so, let's get behind that person and let's go for it. That's, that's something that, you know, I'll, I'll generally watch for. And, um, you know, what's yeah. Um, also, you know, with our, with our younger people who are maybe feeling called, uh, like Yeshua called some of his disciples, let's encourage them to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for them to be full of the Holy Spirit, to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, and to grow spiritually. That, that, that is laying a solid foundation for men and women who will, who will be the next generation of leaders in the body of Messiah. Um, Numbers chapters 28 and 29. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time there. Basically, it's just an overview of the appointed times of God, the Moedim. And uh, it uh, lists basically all of the festivals. And these are things that we do regularly. Uh, one cool thing, I'm going to give you a little trailer for this, and I'm not going to unpack it until Shavuot. But for Shavuot, there's a certain number of bulls that's offered. And it changes every day. And the number of bulls, when you add them up... Oh, sorry, for Sukkot. Thank you, Genevieve, not for Shavuot. Sorry, they all sound the same. These Hebrew words, eh? You just kind of get to be a hodgepodge in your mind. But anyway, the number of bulls offered, it's a different number for each day. It's like a bull offering countdown. And when you add them up, it's symbolic of something cool. 
So um, I'll leave that with you for the summer and just let you toss and turn and bet about that and, uh, and, and wait for Sukkot and uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that thought at, at, at Sukkot. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's look at... Let's look at um, we're going to look at the last chapter of 2 Timothy and uh, look at a couple things in, and look at a couple things in Titus also. So let's, let's, uh, let's do that together. How, how, is, how is our volume level? Is this working okay with it, the mic? Okay. Um, okay, like... Oh, man, Shaul, he was like one of the luminaries of our movement, eh? Like, Paul was such a sage. And I, I love Second Timothy because you can just hear, like, this is senior wisdom coming through, like, like years of experience. So I, I, I don't even feel qualified to comment on this, to be honest with you. I'll just share with you a couple things that I really liked. Um that jumped out at me. In um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, one of the things that Paul, as the mentor of Timothy, charges him with is, do the work of an evangelist. And um, I'm just going to go on a little rant here for a second. Something that really bothers me is when people like flaunt their titles and abuse their titles. Uh, whether it be pastor or evangelist or, I don't know, if you're on Facebook, there are all of these like prophet this and apostle that people. And I just, it, it pushes my buttons, I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I feel like in the religious community, whether it be in Christianity or in Messianic Judaism, titles get abused. You know, it's like you can't even address someone unless you call the man rabbi, append the term rabbi um, in front of his name. And I just, I, there are a lot of things like that I don't see in the New Testament. I don't see Paul being called a rabbi. I don't see any of Yeshua's apostles being called rabbis. What I see them being called as apostles. And I, I just wonder, you know, as a Messianic Jewish movement, are we really serious about staying true to the, the pattern and the nomenclature of the New Testament? Because if so, then I personally think we need to drop the whole rabbi thing. You know, if God is raising up prophets, let's call them prophets. If God is raising up apostles, let's call them apostles. But I just don't see the rabbi thing there. Um, I actually, nowhere do we see someone being called shepherd or pastor as a title either. Um, Sometimes I feel like that one even gets abused. Um, I'll share with you my personal philosophy. My personal philosophy is if you're called to play a role in serving the Messianic community, then just do your job. You don't need a title in front of your name. Just stay as humble as you can and just do your job. So, you know, if you function where you hear the voice of God and you communicate His word to people in a prophetic capacity, don't start calling yourself prophet so-and-so. Please, just, just let us call you by your name. And of course, none of you guys are marching around calling yourself prophet so-and-so. But I, I, I'm speaking on a broader level, you know, as a movement. Like, there are some places where, like, you can't... Let's say that a man is called as a shepherd to, to teach a local congregation, to pastor those people. And you can't even call... Like, it's like, it's like sacrilege if you don't call them man pastor. And I, I don't know. I, I have to admit, I have hesitations with that. Just because I don't see it in the New Testament. So w- w- when I see this, I like what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's not saying, Timothy, make sure you wear your evangelist name tag. Make sure that you make sure that people call evangelist Timothy. He said, do the work of an evangelist. And so, you know, whatever your giftings are, whatever you're called to, I encourage you, just do the job. Do the work of that. Yeah, all right. So there, I'm, I'm done my rant. <laughs> Is the title servant okay? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and like, there, there's a place for titles, eh? Thank you. Um, servant's great. I mean, you know, like, in the Messianic community, often, if someone is playing something of a leadership role, they'll be, the, they'll be called the congregational leader or whatever. That's a title too, right? And I mean, generally, if someone asks me what my job is, you know, I'll say I'm the congregational leader of, of Crown of Messiah, um, because I feel called in that, in that capacity, and that's how... That's the capacity in which I serve our congregation. Or maybe I'm something of a teacher. But that's just, it's not a title. It's a job description, eh? Yeah. And hey, maybe we can all be servants. Hopefully that's like, maybe that's the title for all of us. I guess Yeshua is the greatest in that regard. Yeah. Um, in, we're brothers and sisters. That's very true. Um, more often throughout the apostolic scriptures, believers are called brothers and sisters. And that's something that we all are. Okay, I'm not a sister, but I'm a, I'm a brother. So we're, we're either brothers or sisters. <laughs> yeah. Um, in 2 Timothy 2.7, uh, Paul uses a military analogy and a sports analogy. Uh, an athletic, uh, he uses athletic imagery. He says, I fought the good fight. That's a military uh, illusion. Uh, it has the connotation of um, Paul was engaged in some level of combat, uh, spiritually speaking. And then he says, I finished the course. Uh, that's an allusion to track and field in the Greco-Roman world. That's an allusion to Greek athletes who would race, who would, who would run the course and who would finish the race. And it's actually interesting how many times Paul uses that. I, I, I'm assuming that there was something maybe about the figure of a soldier, or maybe a phalanx of Roman soldiers that Paul found somehow inspiring. Or maybe, who knows when he went to a, a Greek track and field event, but at some point he must have realized, you know what, this is kind of a picture of what I'm doing for the kingdom. And uh, you, you'll find that throughout Paul's writing. So I encourage you, um, if there's some area of activity, maybe it's in the sports world, or maybe it's military uh, illusions, um, if you find that inspiring and if you're able to understand your faith and understand your mission in those terms, you're not alone. Paul did that too. Yeah, he used, he used terms like that on a regular basis. Um, also in, in Philemon, this will be my only commentary from Philemon, so uh, get ready. In verse two, oh, verses 1 and 2, he's greeting Philemon and then his wife, uh, Apphia, and uh, then Archippus. It's, it's probable that Archippus was the, the son of Philemon and Aphia. Uh, so it's probable he was a... Oh, and then he also greets the congregation that met in their home. Uh, it's probable that Archippus, as, as the son of Philemon and Aphia, was a slightly younger man. And it's kind of cool like how he, uh, how, he, uh, how he identifies this guy. He says, Archippus, our fellow soldier... So it could have been the, you know, reading into that, it could have been that Archippus was a younger man. Maybe he aspired to be a Roman soldier one day. Maybe he came to faith in Yeshua and realized that that wouldn't be the best course for his life or the best way to accomplish his mission for Yeshua. And, uh, but maybe he always admired Roman soldiers. Who, who's to say? Whatever the case may be, Paul had some degree of affinity with this young man as fellow soldiers in Yeshua's army. I, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, I like this. It's kind of like, you kind of get this glimpse of an apostolic team in action headed by Paul as a senior apostle. In, um, and he lists quite a few of his colleagues, people that were working with him in, uh, in raising up congregations and in, um, in, in giving them oversight. He mentions... Um, 
Demas took off, he cut out. Then Crescens was in Galatia, so he was working with the Galatian congregations. Uh, Titus was in Dalmatia, so Titus was working with the Dalmatian congregations, uh, traveling in that area. Luke, faithful Luke, he stuck with Paul, taking care of him. Um, Then he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. So Mark evidently was part of the team. Uh, He he ditched, actually, on Paul on, on their first trip. And it's kind of nice that Mark was back in, in, a, in a good relationship with Paul and that Paul found him useful. And then he also mentions Tychicus, whom he sent to Ephesus. So um, evidently there was some need in the Ephesian uh, messianic community, shall we say. And he sent Tychicus to, uh, to, uh, to help with that. Anyway, I just thought that's a really... You can tell Paul was a hub of activity. I mean, people were coming, people were going. He, was, he, was, um, he wasn't just doing his thing all by himself. He was working with a team... Paul was working in the context of a team and he was raising up a new generation of leaders. He was mentoring younger men and he was phasing them in to uh, levels of responsibility working with congregations. So I, I would love to see that happen more in the, in the Messianic Jewish community also. And I, I'm sure that that will just naturally grow as, as we continue to follow Yeshua and uh, look to him as the, the ultimate head uh, of, of us as a, as a body on a national and an international level. Uh, in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, there's a, there's a key insight to truth. Uh, you know, some people are on a quest for truth. Uh, hopefully we're on a quest for truth. And Paul gives a key insight into truth. Um, he says, the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And uh, you may remember a couple months ago, we really unpacked that concept of godliness. We looked at how basically uh, it's the Greek word that is, the, that is parallel to the Hebrew word for devotion, which is chasidut. Um, you, you guys remember that? We talked about Hasidic Jews, um, how they're Hasid, that means they're devoted, um, and uh, how basically the concept of godliness parallels that. It's, it's devotion to, uh, to Elohim, it's devotion to His Messiah. So this is, and it's based on the root word chesed, which is like, covenant-based devotion. It's a relational term. And uh, that just really grabbed me. Like, truth is only something that can be known in the context of devotion to Messiah. You know, like a, a, a relationship with Elohim where we know His devotion to us and we are devoted to Him. And that just hit me. So, you know, if I like, if I go and I go on a quest for truth or I'm just reading the Bible and trying to really dig in it's not really going to make sense outside of a relationship in which I know the Father's devotion and I'm growing in my devotion to Him. That kind of makes sense. Why would He, why would he let us know the truth if we have no level of devotion to Him? You know, as we grow in our devotion to Him, maybe He'll let us get to know Him better as the truth and uh, come to a fuller comprehension of His truth. So that on a personal level, that's something that, that really hit me. In, uh, in uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 9... Paul says um, in verse 10, sorry, he says uh, he has some advice for slaves, people with a social status of slave, and he says, um, showing all good faith, why? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. I wanted to break down that concept, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. What would be the Hebrew word for doctrine? Uh, Halakha would have the concept of your walk, yeah, how you apply the Torah. Um, what would be what would be some other words? Torah. Torah, yeah. I mean, Torah. What, how do we? How, what's the best translation of Torah into English? 
teaching, yeah, and doctrine is teaching, isn't it? There's another Hebrew word, lekach, that's sometimes used in some of the classical Hebrew translations of the New Testament. But just think about that. The doctrine of God our Savior in Hebrew is the concept of the Torah, God's Torah. And uh, Paul says that, you know, let slaves conduct themselves in a certain manner. Why? So that they can adorn God's Torah. That's a very, that would be staying true to the original concept. Adorning God's Torah. I actually, I looked up the Greek word for adorning. I, I thought you would appreciate this. It's cosmeo. Cosmeo. Can you think of an English word that has this as its root? Cosmetics. Yeah, that's right. So we get the word cosmetic, you know, um, making yourself look nice and, um, you know, uh, whatever, adorning yourself from this word. So I just thought, that's cool. That really grabbed me. Like, our mission as individuals and as a community to adorn the Torah, to apply, like, the cosmetics of how we can conduct ourselves and how we do the mitzvot to the Torah. It's kind of like... I don't know, putting makeup on the Torah? <laughs> Giving it a facelift? Something like that. Not that it looks bad, right? But what's making it attractive to people. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that was something that I, I found inspiring. And actually, interestingly enough, this is a classic Jewish concept. Uh, it's usually called beautifying the mitzvah. In, in, uh, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, there, there's a passage in uh, one of the classic Jewish texts where it says, you know, if you're going to do the mitzvah, do it beautifully. So make a beautiful lulav. Make a beautiful sukkah. Write a beautiful Torah scroll. And uh, wrap it up with beautiful silks. Make beautiful tzitzit. And so we, we definitely see this Jewish concept in, uh, in the Pauline epistles. So I, I, I like that. I want to I continue to grow on that. So you know, when we had our carport sukkah, and we decked that thing out with, you know, little lights and hanging fruits and we hung art in that thing. You were, you were adorning the doctrine of God. You were, you were uh, making the Torah beautiful. You were making it an attractive thing. And uh, so we, when, you know, let's say our friends Micha and Becky, when they joined us, they are probably like, this is a really nice sukkah. We were, we were making Yeshua faith attractive. This is uh, maybe the idea there, eh? So uh, that, really, that really grabbed me. Um, Paul gives a couple of watch-outs also. In uh, Titus 1.14, he says, Don't give undue attention to Jewish myths. Uh, the Hebrew term for this is agadot. Everybody say agadot. It's, it's actually like a genre of Jewish literature where you take the texts of the Bible and you kind of embellish them. Some, so if, I don't know, have any of you read, for instance, the book of Jasher or the book of Enoch or stuff from the Midrash? Now, the, the book of Jasher does have a seminal truths in it, but over time it's really been embellished. Um, I don't know, like the sages, for instance, would go back to the stories about, about um, the, the 12 sons of Israel, and they would really soup up those stories. Like, they made guys like Judah out to be, like, kind of your, like, almost like WWF superhero wrestlers of, of today. Like, these guys were massive. They could jump over buildings. They could, they could take on 10,000 Philistines. And uh, it's kind of like, if, if you read traditional Jewish texts, you will very quickly encounter this genre of literature, Agadah. And it's not always bad. Sometimes it's adding to the Bible, which I don't think is cool. But, but it's not always bad. Often there's a nugget of, of truth there, um, that, that kind of idea. But anyway, Paul says, don't give too much attention to this. Um, I, I think on a positive level, what we could hear Paul saying is like, stay in the scriptures, 
stay Bible-based. Let your focus be there. Um, you know, I, in my teaching, like, because I do read a lot, because I do enjoy reading, like, classic Jewish texts and stuff, I could drop in a lot of things. Well, you know, this sage says this, and this rabbi said that, and this story from, from this Agadah says that, and I, 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 I it's fun, and it's kind of like brain candy, and it can almost be kind of titillating because it's new. It's like, wow, I never knew that story before, you know? But you know what? When we do that, I kind of wonder if we don't dilute ourselves, I personally, like, in my preaching, I have a commitment to stay Bible-based and just to preach the Bible. Because, you know what, I don't think we can ever get too strong in what the scriptures say, and I think there's power in that also. So, uh, anyway, that's a little insight into how, how, how I function. Um, Paul also said to, said to steer clear of the commandments of men. Uh, in other words, like, humanly devised religious systems. As human beings, we love making up rules. We love making traditions that become unbreakable and infallible. And if someone tries to remove them, then we have to kill that person, right? And Paul says, guys, just steer clear of that. Watch out for uh, humanly devised religious systems. Um, In Titus chapter 3, verse 9, he also says to avoid foolish controversies. And I looked up the, the word for controversy there. The root of it is to search for something. Which is interesting because that's the root word for midrash also. Did you know that midrash means a search? So when we're midrashing, we're searching for something. Now, did Paul say avoid that altogether? No. He just said avoid foolish ones. So you know, you know there's, there's a place where we as a community exercise discernment and we say, okay, you know, there are some midrashes that are just stupid and we're not going to go in that direction. And then there's some midrashes that are good and that are conducive to spiritual growth and that are practical and healthy. And we're going to go for those ones. So Paul says, you know, to steer clear of, of foolish midrashes. And um, he, he goes on to maybe kind of expand on that a little bit. I'll, I'll give you some examples like, okay, the serpent. He shows up on the scene. He engages even a dialogue. It sure seems in, innocent. I mean, the serpent was just asking a question, Right? Eve was just having a conversation. But it was satanic. And it was, and it was undermining the authority of the Word of God. And it resulted in the catastrophe for the human race. And you know, often today, that's how the enemy will, will, will attack a congregation. Start, or, or, or an individual. Well, you know, I'm just questioning this. Well, you know, it's just a question. I'm just on a search for truth. And you know what? There are, there are, the majority of our questions are good, are legitimate, are healthy. But there's some questions that just aren't worth asking. There's some places you just don't want to go. Right? What would be an example? Um, like, there's lots of really bizarre stuff out there, right? What? <laughs> maybe that would be, maybe that would be an example. Yeah, uh, here, here, here's 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 a concept where Paul kind of expands on this in the verse. Though he says, um, "Avoid strife and disputes about the Torah." In in the same passage in Titus chapter three, so he says, um, "You know, when we begin to dig into the Torah, when we begin to apply it into our lives, it can bring up strife in a community, like friction and stuff, and it can bring up disputes, like debates." arguments, etc. And you know what? I value healthy conversation. I love it when, let's say we have a difference of opinions, and we can say, well, let's, let's talk that through together. Let's dig into the Word. So I, I don't think that's what Paul was talking about necessarily. But uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's when it hits the level of arguing and fighting. What do you think? 
You know, there's, there's conversation and stuff like that, but then there's also arguing and fighting. So, you, you know, you could basically hear Paul saying, don't argue and fight about how to do Torah. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of Messianic communities read that verse and uh, they, they missed the, the do not part, so they accidentally read it as argue and fight about how to do Torah. And, and that's why a lot of um, Messianic communities uh, argue and fight about how to do Torah, because, you know, that verse got mistranslated or maybe they, they misread it. Just kidding. But you know, it is kind of weird how much, like, in the Messianic, the broader Messianic community, like, there's a lot of arguing and fighting about the minutiae of Torah observance. And, and Paul says, guys, just don't do it. You know, just steer clear of that. And uh, 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 the flip side of that, that's the do not of what Paul said. Um, here's the do of what he said. It's, it's right before that in Titus chapter 3, uh, verse, uh, I think it's in verse, verse 8. Yeah, okay. He, he keeps like pushing this. He keeps being like, our people need to engage in good deeds. It was like, it was like his big thrust in this letter. And um, that's, that's the positive side. You know, when we are engaged in doing good, you know, for, for our families, for the community around us, when we're focused on accomplishing our mission of preaching the gospel, loving each other, making disciples for Yeshua, engaging with the world around us so we can influence people and bring them to, the, to Yeshua in the Torah... You know, we're not going to have time for arguing and fighting about, about some of the small stuff. Um, the, the, the Chinese house church movement, this is what they have to say. They say that, you know, we look at the Western church and we don't understand how you can spend so much time bickering and arguing about stuff that doesn't really matter. We don't have time for that. We have so many new believers. We, we're so busy just teaching them the basics. Maybe you could compare it to, uh, let's say if a family, let's say if a couple... Had, or let, let's say, like, we as a community, let's say that we run a daycare and we had, like, 50 babies to take care of. I mean, we're just not going to have much time for anything other than taking care of those babies and, and, and changing their diapers and keeping them safe. And I, I know that, that's my dream for us as a community. She was going to continue to bring people to us. He's going to bring people to each one of us, especially as we pray for people. And uh, we're going to have a lot of babies around here. And we're going to be really busy just taking care of them. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, we should have the same problems with the Chinese yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, maybe uh, I'll, I'll finish our talk here looking at, looking at um, one thing that Paul said. Like, so Paul says, like, he talks about engaging in good deeds and how important that is. The, the, like, the, the, the root concept there in that Greek word for engaging means to lead. You remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago, an elder's job description, and there were five different words for, for ruling, and one of them is to lead, another is to engage in the sense of engaging in good deeds. So, like, when we do that, when we engage in good deeds, when we just do the Torah in our personal lives, when we preach the gospel and stuff, you, you, are, you are automatically becoming a leader. And I like that, because there's this big buzz about leadership, but I don't know, I, I don't think our, our focus should be on like being a leader. I think our focus should just be on doing what Yeshua has called us to do, and you will automatically begin to influence your world in, in His direction. So that, that's how I see it. And that makes it Yeshua-oriented instead of me-oriented. So, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, so along those lines... Paul gives some, some really cool advice, especially for the older ladies in communities. And um, let's, let's finish looking at that. 
this was pretty inspiring. I looked up a couple of root, root words there in the concept, so I, I thought you guys would enjoy that. Um, you know, this was especially for, for women, but I think it applies to, to guys also. In Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, um, he lists uh, seven things. And these are things that I really see, like, in every one of you sisters in the room. So as I go through these, I just want to say, like, wow, I see this in you. I really admire it. And uh, uh, it'll be worth, worth looking at here. It's, it's, it's neat that, like, the older women in a community don't get retired and then they do nothing. It's actually the opposite. They become the mentors and the teachers to the younger generation. So, you know, if you're, if you're in, that kind of, in that kind of role of an older, older sister or whatever, then this is your job description. If you're in the role of a younger sister, um, then your job description is probably to receive um, in, these, in these specific areas. So firstly, uh, Paul says, um, encourage them to love their husbands and love their children. Uh, thirdly, he says, um, encourage them to be sensible. And I looked up that word sensible. In the Greek, it's sophron, Strong's number 4998. And it's actually a contraction of two words. It's, a con- it's, it's the word for being saved. And like that word is plastered all over the New Testament, eh? Like being saved, salvation. It's like the big thrust of the New Testament. And did you know that sometimes that word is translated as being saved? Sometimes it's also translated as being made well or healed. So where it says that Yeshua like healed somebody or made them well, the word there's the same word for saved. So that's the that's half of this word sophron that's translated as sensible. The other half is um, thinking. The word for thinking. So the word sensible connotes like healthy thinking or being made well in your thinking. And I just think, wow, like the ladies in a messianic community are powerful. They get to teach the younger sisters how to have healthy thinking patterns. You know, how to, how to, ref, how to reflect, like, how, how, does, how, does a, how does a woman think who's saved by Yeshua? It's kind of the concept there. Um, number four, he uses the word, he, he, he uses the word pure. Um, it means clean from the root holy. Uh, it's translated in other places as innocent, free from sin, and modest. I think that's a very that's another very powerful and applicable thing, especially in our culture. You know, we're going to have we're going to have sisters come into our community, maybe from totally non-religious backgrounds, and maybe they never had a mom to teach them about the dignity that every woman is created with, or or the whole concept of modesty. And you know, it's going to get to be the role of of you sisters to to mentor those girls and to take them under your wing and to lovingly teach them about dignity and modesty. Wow, eh? And you know, it's the younger sister's role to, to listen to that teaching and to, 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 uh, to really uh, accept that. Um, number five, uh, worker at home. This is another cool term. Um, it's a contraction of two words. Um, sometimes it's translated as a housekeeper, but it's actually a contraction of the word for the home. Everybody say home. And the word for guarding, which is a verb. Everybody say guarding. All right? So the concept there is the guardian of the home. Maybe you could say like, if you're a lady, then part of your mission is to be the home guard. You're the home guard. Doesn't that sound cool? I don't know, like if I were to choose between the term housekeeper and the home guard, I would go for home guard every time. Housekeeper is awesome. It's definitely true and it's noble and it's a job description. But to say, I'm the home guard, 
I don't know. It's just, it's powerful. And, and that's you. That's, that's your calling to be the home guard. So, um, number six, uh, the word kind is uh, Strong's number 18. It's actually like translated tons of times in other places in the New Testament as good. And it has the sense of being beneficial or useful. So that's cool. Like the older sisters in the community get to mentor the younger sisters and show them how they can be beneficial and useful to their husbands, their children, uh, and their communities. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, 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 uh, the guys too can be mentoring and showing each other how they can be beneficial and useful too. So the guys don't end up just, you know, sitting on the couch watching football and having a beer while the wives are learning about being beneficial and useful and stuff. It cuts both ways, doesn't it? And then, okay, finally, the seventh one here. Um, the NASB renders this word as, where is it? Like, where is it? Can you guys help me? Where is that verse? Yeah, subject to their husbands, right. Okay, so let's, let's look at that one too. Uh, the Greek word there, it's Strong's 5293. It's hupoteso. Everybody say hupoteso. It's, it's another contraction of two words. Hupo means under. Everybody say under. And teso means like that which is appointed or fixed or designated or set or ordered. All right, it's translated as all those words in other places in the New Testament. So it's being like being under order or being under that which is being appointed by God is, is kind of the idea there. Um, actually, I think the, the English words that we use to translate that are probably kind of similar. You have words like subject, and that has the, the, the prefix sub, which means under, or submit, which also has the word sub. Um, anyway, that, that's the, the, the term that Paul uses. Um, the question is, what does being subject look like? Is this word used anywhere else in the New Testament? Maybe if we look at it, how it's used in other places, it'll give us a, a broader understanding. So I looked it up. Um, I'm a pretty simple Bible scholar. I just use e-sword, and I say, okay, this is the Strong's number, so I key in the Strong's number, and I just look at all the places where it pops up in the New Testament. And it'll often give you a much fuller sense of a word. So, you know, my level of Bible scholarship is something we can all do, but I, I'm going to share with you uh, my, my findings on this one. I'll give you about eight examples. Um, in Luke number 2, it says Yeshua was subject to his parents. It's that word. In Luke 10, the demons were subject to the disciples. In Romans 8, the fleshly mind doesn't subject itself to God's law. In Romans 13, we are to be subject to the governing authorities. In 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1, everything has been subjected under Yeshua's feet. In 1 Corinthians 16, um, Paul says to be subject to those who have devoted themselves to serving the saints. In Titus 2, slaves are to be subject to their masters. In James 4, we are to, be, to submit to God. And uh, in Ephesians 5, we collectively are to be subject to one another in the fear of Messiah. And uh, finally, in Ephesians 5, we have a correlative thought. Uh, uh, the same instructions, basically. Paul says the congregation is to be subject to Messiah. And uh, that's the model, he says, for wives being subject to their husbands. So in other words, you know, the relationship between a husband and a wife is a miniature of the relationship between Yeshua and his congregation. So based on, based on that, it, it, it certainly appears that 
men have a certain role to play and women have a certain role to play in reflecting the glorious and beautiful and love-filled and humble relationship that Yeshua has with his bride. So anyway, that's a, that's a flash overview for you of uh, the mission that Paul lays out for the, uh, the, uh, the older sisters in the congregation. And I assume for, for younger ladies, um, two things for younger ladies. Firstly, um, you can grow in these areas. These are like areas um, where you're like becoming a hero, where, uh, where you're like becoming who you're called to be. And secondly, for younger ladies, like maybe don't even wait for the older sisters to come to you. Go to them. You know, go to, go to the older ladies and say, Tell me about loving my husband. How can I love my husband better? What have you discovered in that area? Or loving children or any one of these other character qualities. So that's the last thing from, uh, from this epistle that I wanted to, to cover here. And even the whole concept of congregational leader, that's, just, that's a job description, eh? Like Paul says, one of the many gifts is, is leadership. But, it's, but I, I've even wondered about that because Yeshua says, don't call anyone leader. In that passage also, I think. Where, where is it? That's in Matthew 23, right? Yeah, because he says in Matthew 23... Um, yeah, verse 10. Don't be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Mashiach. So, I mean, it's almost a paradox. You know, Paul says one of the gifts is that of leadership, and if that's your gift, then be diligent and just do it. Uh, but at the same time, it's like it's not a big title or whatever. So, I've even hesitated with that one. And I, I even think in our family, like, you know, I, I, I give a certain degree of spiritual leadership in my family. And it, it's even in our ketubah, the, the, the way that Genevieve framed our, and I wrote out our ketubah. But even in our ketubah, in our marriage vows, um, like, we, we emphasized it's not my leadership, it's Yeshua's leadership through me. So that's what we're looking for. And it's the same with congregation. Different people will, 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 will spearhead different initiatives and lead in different areas, but it's not that person. It's Yeshua leading in different, in different capacities through those people. And that's what I love. Yeah, that's a distinctive of the, of the Messianic community. Well, I, there have been a couple of people when I told someone, like, I function as a rabbi, but I don't have those credentials, and I don't believe in using that term because Yeshua is our rabbi. But you know, when people, when you look at what a rabbi, when the job description of a rabbi in a congregation, it's like he helps to administrate things and teach and give spiritual guidance, and I do that stuff. So there have been a couple of times when I've told people that's how I function, to help them understand what I do. But yeah, again, I like to point it to Yeshua. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.